Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Adriana Juraszek. And we are your hosts. This week, we are fortunate to bring you part one of a two-part series on STIs. Professor George Soren Teplika will moderate a discussion with Dr. Derek Friedman. I mean, I specialize in 10 centimeters square of skin only, and my main interest is where it's been, where it's going to, and to enhance its journey. But before we get into it, face-to-face courses are back. Specialists, residents, and now nurses all have the possibility to attend EADV organized courses. We're looking forward to meeting you in some of the most beautiful cities in Europe. To see what's coming up next, go to eadv.org and check under face-to-face education. If you're not an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, 19 medical journals including EADV's esteemed JADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia and much, much more. Go to eadv.org under membership for more information. Professor George Soren Teplika is an esteemed dermatovenereologist and currently on the EADV Phlebology Task Force. We are fortunate to join him as he moderates a discussion with venereologist Dr. Derek Friedman, who happens to be on EADV's STI Task Force. Let's have a listen. I'm uh, George Soren Teplika, dermatovenerologist in Romania, and I'm here today with Dr. Derek Friedman from Dublin, Ireland. And I'm uh, Derek Friedman. I'm a pure venereologist in Dublin, and uh, my expertise is purely with sexually transmitted infections. I know a little bit about skin, but certainly not enough. Do you think this um, unique um, monospeciality venerology or uh, genital urinary medicine uh, alters your perspective as compared with what is happening in other countries on the continent, uh, we are all practicing as dermatovenerologists? Uh, certainly. I mean, I specialize in 10 centimeters square of skin only. And my main interest is where it's been, where it's going to, and to enhance its journey. So we're very focused and concentrated uh, on uh, infection, obviously, as well as uh, skin conditions in the area, but we also extend into so many functional uh, functional a- areas uh, in relation to public health, uh, the psychosexual uh, aspects, uh, and really relationships. You know, it's the it's the old saying that uh, Osler said at the turn of the. 20th century, the good doctor treats the disease, the great doctor treats the patient. And also we have a saying that probably you also know, the one who knows syphilis knows dermatology. So uh, we we can have both. But I wonder if um, it's also true that you are dealing with HIV patients, which uh, we are not dealing uh, usually. Well, I mean, HIV is a sexually transmitted infection. And because the way it appeared uh, and the serious consequences initially, it's almost been captured by the infectious disease specialty. But in reality, that's been a great mistake because 
as venereologists, genital urinary physicians, we're the people who can see it at first hand. And now with the current treatment, not only can we initiate treatment immediately, but with PrEP, uh, we can actually prevent infection. Uh, unfortunately, that prevention uh, has led to a great deal of partying. And now we are becoming experts again in syphilis and gonorrhea, infections which we thought had left us 20 years ago. So it's like a wheel who is permanently turning and turning. But uh, also we don't have to forget that we have a lot of progress. And uh, for instance, we are having molecular testing available. Uh, this made some uh, revolution in uh, STIs, uh, in diagnosis. And um, this is uh, something that we see in the last 20 years, not, not so much. Uh, do you think that um, using these uh, new techniques um, we will become uh, too taste-based uh, on our patient management? We'll do nothing else than testing and that's it? We will be like a machine? Yes. Uh, I mean, there is a great danger in this. These molecular tests are so exquisitely sensitive uh, that we're detecting many more infections uh, than we ever did before. Particularly, I think we notice pharyngeal gonorrhea. Uh, and uh, because, because of these new tests, uh, uh, Kit Farley's group in um, Australia has uh, pointed out the importance of pharyngeal infection uh, in uh, maintaining the epidemics uh, of, uh, of gonorrhea, particularly among MSMs. Uh, they're a double-edged sword. I mean, they're exquisitely sensitive. And then we're also, as venereologists, we're really aware that we cannot rely on clinical signs and symptoms. The only accurate way we have diagnosing infections is actually using these tests. Because they're so exquisitely sensitive, sometimes we get false positives. Sometimes we get results that aren't significant. And it does take a physician and somebody with knowledge of the test to interpret them properly and to know what, what, what is going on. Um, it's, you know, they've opened up a lot of avenues and with our colleagues, some people get very focused on the tests and forget about the patient. And I think this is important. Uh, public health tends to focus on things you can test for and can count and forgets the huge burden of people with uh, things like genital warts, which you don't, which are not counted, balanitis, all, all, all other conditions which are clinical. So we tend to get this kind of rapid testing system and people being pushed through uh, clinics in vast numbers, uh, but not actually having a consultation that uh, addresses their concerns. You are totally right. And this reminds me, for instance, a discussion that we had uh, when we uh, were uh, discussing the syphilis guideline. And um, we discussed about the dark field examination uh, compared with PCR techniques that are emerging. And um, as you know, dark field examination was considered gold standard, but uh, um, very recently we are not so sure that we can keep this gold standard because uh, PCR techniques uh, are very good. And the studies that uh, we have right now available shows that PCR is as good as uh, dark field examination. 
And uh, when we think that for dark field examination, you need an expert, you need some uh, microscope who can be costly, um, you probably will uh, prefer to uh, have uh, the availability of uh, PCR techniques. And if you combine these together like uh, multiplex tests, um, it will be also economically very sharp and uh, nobody will need uh, to use uh, a very uh, qualified expert to see actually it's a ponema pallidum and to uh, make the differential with uh, other uh, treponemas that are available also on, uh, on the mucosa uh, when you are testing, for instance, in, uh, in the pharyngeal uh, mucosa. But um, this is something that the future will show and probably we will not anymore uh, use dark field examination, but we'll switch to, to PCR. But also about uh, this molecular testing, I remember that uh, quite recently it was uh, a discussion about chlamydia, um, when um, the tests that were uh, available, the PCR tests, were not, um, uh, not uh, finding all the strains of, of chlamydia, and uh, only the epidemiologists, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, were um, uh, puzzled by the fact that uh, chlamydia infection was not quite uh, following the mathematical models that they were expecting. And that's why uh, uh, they were coming back to the uh, testing as they find out that there is a problem. So they immediately improve and now we have uh, good tests. So we, I think that we don't have to forget the um, epidemiology, the clinical and also laboratory, even modern techniques can uh, can give us fast results, so we have to be very careful and put all those three together. Um, I, I think uh, basically the dark field was the gold standard, uh, but let's hope uh, PCR doesn't become the Bitcoin. <laughs> the, uh, there is no doubt that PCR is the optimal test. And uh, the only problem is the number of laboratories that have a PCR uh, available to them and the time it takes. Uh, I, I like my dark field microscope, it's not particularly expensive, and I can do a point of care diagnosis, uh, which has a 50% sensitivity, no more. And that, that is worthwhile clinically. You've got your patient in front of you, you sit down, you take a specimen, you look at it under the dark field, if you're used to do, if you do it regularly, it's not a big problem. So in 50% of cases, particularly if they got a chancre, you can say, here, look at this, this is it, see it wriggling, and you've got your diagnosis, you can treat immediately. Send it to the lab, you've got to wait for, you've got to wait for a week. The multiplex test that you're mentioning, that's another question. Uh, when I started off in this field, before anybody introduced a new test or anything like that, it was put to a rigorous assessment by our colleagues. People worked out the positivity rate, the predictive rate, everything like that. Nobody has done that for these multiplex tests. We do not know how reliable they are, how sensitive they are, and I'm certainly aware of some tests that are used that look for syphilis in the urine. Test for ureplasm urolyticum. Useless. And uh, only, not only that, you know, bring, make people anxious about something they, that's of no consequence. So we don't, you know, until we actually sit down and assess 
the predictive value uh, of these tests and the negative uh, predictive value of these tests, we don't really know what tools we're using. I mean, a carpenter sharpens his, his chisel and knows how it works. We're using these tests and we don't know how it works and they're being commercialized to a huge degree uh, on the internet. Poor patients are getting them. And not only that, they're spending more to buy these tests than they would if they uh, for a consultation to see a doctor. Well, you are totally right. And it's very um, nice put in practice. Um, just one comment. Uh, today, we don't uh, have um, standardized PCR test for syphilis, so this is coming into total agreement with uh, with what was said uh, before. Um, can we move a little bit to the treatment because we are discussing about uh, uh, modernity, about uh, new tests, uh, new treatment. Everybody's expecting to have something new uh, in uh, in the treatment of STIs. Are we still uh, using our old tricks to treat uh, these STIs? What do you think? Yes. Uh, just uh, just before we leave syphilis, uh, you know, over the years in practice, uh, whatever about dark feet or anything like that, I have always relied on serology. You take a blood test the first time the patient attends to you and you ask them to come back six to eight weeks later and you do repeat serology. That way you will not miss a case of syphilis. Uh, it's great if you can do the dark round on the spot, but Serology is the mainstay and doing it on every single patient together with a HIV test just stops you missing anything. Um, when it comes to treatment for syphilis, I mean, penic we were so lucky. Penicillin is the mainstay. But then because penicillin is so cheap and not of interest to the pharmaceutical industry, we're having supply problems. So uh, unless you have an, an expensive drug, sometimes uh, you can't get it. Uh, we're back to doxycycline for the treatment of chlamydia and uh, non-specific urethritis, and that is extremely effective. The guideline says seven days. Uh, I must say I prefer a longer course, and uh, my clinical experience is that I get uh, very little persistent urethritis when I use doxycycline for 12 to 14 days. But I haven't done I haven't done an audit. And if we are talking about treatment, um, I think that we face a challenge, a real one for uh, multi-drug resistance. And uh, I remember that um, in 2016, uh, United Nations, not WHO, United Nations was saying that um, the, at that moment we are facing a big problem with uh, bugs that are not um, able to be treated. And the mention was to um, um, tuberculosis, to uh, candida, candida auris, and also to the gonococcal infection, gonococcal urethritis. So since then, um, a lot of developments were um, taking place, but uh, we are still having this problem with uh, multi-drug resistance. And um, as it, the situation in syphilis when uh, we were not uh, being able to find uh, benzentine penicillin, which is uh, the number one, uh, uh, the gold standard for the treatment. Um, we were forced to use uh, some other drugs that proved not so efficient. For instance, I remember that uh, 
when uh, we started to use azithromycin, we, we find immediately that it's very, the treponema is uh, becoming resistant very rapidly. Uh, the change to cefixim uh, was not so so nice either. Cefxiaxon uh, uh, was showing some um, good data, but uh, it's not clear, and uh, of course it's not at the standard of uh, benzantin penicillin. And um, we can rely only on the old doxycycline, which uh, proved to be uh, efficient. I know that in this moment there are some uh, some studies, for instance, for syphilis with uh, linezolid, and um, they show that the efficacy of linezolid is almost equivalent to uh, benzantin penicillin. So uh, it's not a very um, wide step forward. Um, other drugs are uh, are um, also uh, tested. But uh, let's hope that benzene will not anymore be a, uh, in a shortage. And um, I think that this problem of shortages can, can be uh, addressed to other level. Um, we all know as um, venerologists that, uh, for instance, in, in a gonococcal infection, when we face this uh, uh, resistance, um, for instance, we have some drugs that are very cheap uh, and are not available in Europe. Um, maybe we can um, do something here and uh, for instance pectinomycin which uh, was proved to be uh, very efficient and uh, no resistance was developed until uh, now maybe we can have access to these uh, drugs uh, also here in uh, in europe so i think there are a couple of points uh, i'd like to make and the first point is azithromycin should be kept for infections above the waist and should not be used in venereology. Fine for respiratory tract infections, things like that, but please let's stop using it for sexually transmitted infections. Uh, the second thing is uh, that there are, we have drugs, it's the availability of drugs uh, that is, is the problem. And the problem with the manufacturer has not been interested in drugs that are cheap. And the third is the pharmaceutical industry is only uh, interested in developing uh, medications and drugs that are, uh, you know, have, have a high, high sales and a high margin on them. And uh, they're not willing to invest into antibiotics. And this is an institutional and uh, organizational thing in that uh, if we, were to, if we had relied on government agencies and the WHO and United Nations to develop pharmaceuticals, we'd have very few pharmaceuticals today. But this is what is required uh, for infectious diseases, uh, that we have uh, the development of new antibiotics and new pharmaceuticals to combat these infections even if they're not commercially reliable. And of course, the other thing is, as soon as these uh, agents are developed and become available, we have a load of people screaming that they should be provided at cost uh, uh, to, to, to the whole population. So there are a lot of diverse social and organizational problems that need to be addressed. And if they're not addressed, uh, it'll be, uh, it'll, we'll, we will have another uh, COVID-type emergency of multidrug-resistant infections. I would like to stay a little bit in this field of treatment. Um, we discussed about syphilis, about gonococcal infection, which are, let's say, the major um, uh, venerological diseases. But 
We can have problems also with patients where, uh, which are having the minor diseases like uh, genital warts or uh, herpes, genital herpes. Everybody knows, oh, okay, it's, it's just a minor um, infection, we will treat it. But uh, not always you are uh, having this. You have the situation of a patient who is coming and coming again because uh, his or her problem is not resolved. And uh, there are many patients, uh, for instance, with uh, herpes, uh, which are uh, continually coming to, to the office. And uh, sometimes you are disappointed by the treatment. Uh, do you have any uh, kind of recommendation for this kind of patients? Well, I would, uh, I, I would argue with you that you would call these infections minor because these infections have a huge psychological impact and social sexual impact upon patients. And the main problem is that they feel that they will no longer be sexually desirable, that they have a virus they can pass on they have to mention to the uh, to a potential partner they have this virus and uh, are they willing to have sex or unprotected sex with them? Are they going to lose relationships, particularly for girls uh, who uh, get herpes? And this was all, this was, uh, this was actually very interesting origins. This all started in the early 1980s when uh, Glaxo developed their drug for herpes and they hyped it. It was on the front of Newsweek and Time. And since then, it's had this, uh, uh, moniker of being the, the, the terrible disease, the, the, the dreaded herpes. And, um, you know, it's a cold sore in a less socially obvious location. Uh, it carries huge stigma. And the best way of getting, dealing with stigma is actually being open and talking about it, encouraging the person with a patient who's got herpes to tell their friends, okay, look, I got herpes, it's a shame, bit of a nuisance, but it's not going to kill me, and I'm not going to let it kill me, and to encourage them. I always remember a patient, I had a lovely young girl who uh, came to me, oh, every week, every two weeks, I couldn't get rid of her warts. They were awful, and she was so upset, nothing. And I eventually got fed up and said, well, look, for God's sake, would you go out and get laid? The warts went a month later. We don't appreciate the psychological impact of these conditions. And really what we're trying to do is restore people to a normal life, to give them a life. And in fact, in some cases, because they talk to their potential partner before they have sex with them, they have better sex and an enhanced life. And this is the message that you can give to them. And this is not a message or not a thing that you can get from online testing or from a clinic that rapidly progress, uh, processes uh, people and tries and fa fails to treat them as, tra as patients. I totally agree that um, uh, patients with uh, STIs um, are stigmatized. Uh, the society probably is not uh, very well prepared to um, discuss these uh, problems. And um, I think that we have to enhance a little bit the awareness uh, on STIs. Um, we have an um, uh, open week for uh, testing, for instance, in April. We are doing uh, tests for free. And I know that this activity is uh, all over Europe. Maybe we can increase uh, uh, these um, activities uh, in many countries and uh, we will be able to um, make um, most of the young persons, also the old one, uh, aware about the 
uh, danger of STIs, but also on the way that we can treat uh, the disease uh, without uh, any problems. Uh, I think that we, we need a, a good uh, media um, companion and uh, I'm very helpful, helpful that I'm very happy that uh, EDV is offering us this possibility to discuss about um, STIs and um, to reach uh, uh, many persons. Um, I think that um, we uh, observed this, uh, this time um, an increase uh, in um, all the STIs. It's a new wave. And so that's it for the first half of this two-part series on STIs for the Dermatology Podcast. As we mentioned, both of our guests today work with EADB task forces. If you would like more information about EADB task forces or even membership benefits, go to www.eadv.org. We would like to thank Professor George Soren Tiplika and Dr. Derek Friedman for their interesting and lively discussion, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Make sure you come back for part two of this series. If you enjoy this podcast, also make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.